0: Joni Mitchell and Big Yellow Taxi on KRCL 90.9, and starting us off, grass from XTC here on Radioactive. I'm your host, Laura Jones, and this is a show that plugs you into the community. We're going to pair up community conversation with music inspired by the good trouble folks are getting up to these days. Today Is Star Trek Day, marking the 55th anniversary of the original series, debuting with James Tiberius, Kirk, Spock, Uhuru, Sulu, Bones, Scotty, all that crew, and so much that has come since then. We'll definitely be having some fun with that. I had the chance to talk with Treknologist Carl Stark about all things Trek, like his favorite episodes, favorite quotes, and the meaning of life the beloved sci-fi series seems to engender. The Wild Utah Project has a new name. Stick around to find out the six different ways you can volunteer your time with what they're now calling the Sageland Collaborative. You can go in the field and do a little citizen science with them. I'll also have a nod to the Salt Lake City Greek Festival starts Friday, including a little something from Maria Callis. But I wanted to start by sharing the latest COVID numbers in our community, folks. Yesterday, the Utah Department of Health reported 4,657 new cases of COVID from the extended Labor Day weekend. There were 27 deaths. 1,151 school-aged cases and 482 hospitalizations. And as of this morning, Intermountain Healthcare says patient volumes, and that includes both COVID and non-COVID patients, for the staffed beds they have in their ICUs is at 99%. Here's Dr. Brandon Webb of Intermountain Healthcare. He's an infectious diseases physician. And these are some of the comments that he shared earlier today on a community update on Facebook.
1: We're at capacity or above capacity at all of the major COVID hubs across the Intermountain system. Some of our major COVID hospitals are actually well above capacity and are, are having to use creative means of uh, uh, maintaining access for patients in the ICU. Um, like we've talked about on previous Facebook Lives, um, I think morale is an issue. Staffing remains an issue. Um, we're continuing to load level and to uh, use creative means of identifying ways of continuing to provide care for patients, whether they have COVID or non-COVID disease. Let's continue to use all of the tools that are available to us, preventive and immune targeted. And uh, I do want to maybe mention that um, the healthcare systems uh, in Utah are working closely with the Utah Department of Health to increase our availability of monoclonal antibody treatments as well, which is another tool in our toolbox. It's not a substitute for vaccination, but it gives us yet another tool to fight this uh, terrible disease. And because it's an important one and can be life-saving treatment in patients who are at very high risk, We continue to target the therapy at those patients who are at high risk and are working to increase our capacity statewide so we can treat even more patients.
0: Intermountain Healthcare's Dr. Brandon Webb. And just to underscore this point, the vast majority of those being treated for COVID have not been vaccinated for a variety of reasons. But this illustrates the importance and the effectiveness of COVID vaccines. According to Intermountain Healthcare, of fully vaccinated Utahns, less than 0.8% have tested positive for COVID, and of those, only 0.04% have required hospitalization. So, as the marquee on the stateroom says, vaccinate to congregate, especially if you like live music. Now hang in there. A little musical inspiration from the John Wright Trio on KRCL 90.9. You're listening to Radioactive on KRCL. I'm Laura Jones. Still to come, the Greek Festival, and then I'm going to geek out. I mean, seriously, warning ahead. Going to geek out for Star Trek Day with Carl Stark of Starfleet Command's 7th Fleet, a group of local Trekkies who even are going to have their own booth at Fanex next week. Why? Because I do a lot of charity work. We'll talk about that. With its conservation efforts stretching beyond the beehive state, The Wild Utah Project has a new name. To find out more, including the six different field projects you can volunteer for, I spoke with Josh Wood, executive director of the nonprofit now known as Sageland Collaborative.
2: Great. Yes. Uh, Wild Utah Project was founded in 1996. We're now Sageland Collaborative. We uh, rebranded to a new name, Sageland Collaborative, to kind of reflect where we've come since we were founded 25 years ago. We'll be celebrating our 25th anniversary this fall, but uh, basically our projects have grown beyond the boundaries of Utah throughout the West, and uh, we have many projects rather than one, and so our our name reflects um, kind of the scope of our work and also how we work. We collaborate with a lot of groups from individual volunteers to community groups, state agencies, academic institutions, and other nonprofits. So it just kind of reflects where we are today and where we're headed.
0: Sketch for us, if you will, that first project, and then let's talk about all the ones you have going on right now.
2: The first project back in um, 1996 was to basically map out roadless areas of southern Utah and a lot of GIS work. And really, to the organization was founded to... Um, play a vital role in conservation, providing objective science to help inform conservation movements and conservation decisions of wildlife and land throughout the region.
0: And from an independent perspective, not necessarily as the uh, institutional landholder, whether that be private or public, you wanted to put that data out there to be dealt with. That's right.
2: Yeah, we wanted a sourced Uh, where we could or an organization would be available to get the information out there to conduct studies that might take years to get reliable data available for either um, conservation groups to focus their efforts or for policymakers to make informed planning decisions.
0: Your 2021-22 field season looks like it's been pretty busy so far. Amphibian and stream habitat assessments, Wasatch Wildlife Watch, stream and riparian restoration, plants and pollinators, and the Black Rosy Finch Project. Let's just take a few minutes on each one of those. Tell us about amphibian and stream habitat.
2: That is a project where we focus primarily on boreal toads, but other amphibians that are a sensitive species. Their habitat is declining. So we're looking at alpine streams, lakes and ponds where they can be found and documenting where they are so we can know more about their distribution, their survivorship, and help identify areas where they can be reintroduced if that's necessary.
0: And all along, people have been able to volunteer and go out with you and help on this this monitoring, this uh, data collection. So the Wasatch Wildlife Watch, how was that? You rate that a number five commitment being the most involved for folks. That one
2: is a commitment. Uh, People can um receive one of our trail cameras they take it up to a designated location and then they basically hike up there about nine times uh, throughout the year from late spring into late summer and uh, move it a few times throughout the season check the cameras check the memory cards and those are distributed throughout the WASAP so we can get a good idea of wildlife movement, human movement as well, so that can help um, inform where the the wildlife is moving and what habitat needs to be conserved so that their migration corridors are intact.
0: This is huge as more and more of us keep pushing into that urban-wildland interface and expected to expand, what, another 40%, I think you say, over the next 25 years, or rather the Central Wasatch Commission is looking at that. So this project, in the midst of a five-year study, really important that you have volunteers that help you go out and put those cameras in and and make sure they're working.
2: Yeah, it's a really big deal. And that's where an individual volunteer can feel like they're making a real difference because this data helps um, plan where wildlife overpasses are, like the one uh, at the top of Parley's, and where um wildlife need to be able to move in order to uh, maintain their their migration patterns and and their movement while we are continuing to grow and not only develop but also use the wasatch for recreation Um, more people about the same number of people visit the central wasatch as visit all five states of our state's national parks each year so it's there it's an area of high concentration of wildlife and humans Um, using the same space. So this project helps to map out that distribution and that movement.
0: Now, if the Wasatch Wildlife Watch project demands the most of your volunteers, the perhaps lowest level of involvement would be the stream and riparian restoration. It sounds like a good walk, (laughs) but what happens in this project? That project
2: is uh, basically a one-day commitment. It's It can be intensive. People can basically provide whatever physical labor they're capable of doing. We uh, have groups of volunteers go to a, a site that's been designated and permitted through the necessary agencies, and we basically uh, work on restoring that stream habitat. One of the main things we do is um, constructing beaver dam analogs, and that helps retain water, help restore wetlands, and help get uh, streams back to a healthier state. So if you look at a kind of an unhealthy stream, it's been dug down and incised into the ground, and it's been kind of separated from its floodplain, and the project helps these streams to uh, get back to where they ought to be.
0: This is a case where you can really see climate change In effect, as streams dry up and what that means in those stream and riparian corridors and the restoration that needs to be happening there. Yeah, the benefits
2: of this type of work are huge. And uh, one great thing from a volunteer's perspective is you can see it happening right away. The long-term effects are you know, more water being stored in the ground, wetlands being restored, even carbon being sequestered into the soil. But uh, the day you do it, you can see the, the pond starting to form behind the beaver dam analogs. And um, our hope is that uh, in a lot of these sites that the beavers will decide to move in as they see the habitat being restored. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great opportunity to get involved and to really make a
0: difference. You also have a plants and pollinators project that people can get involved with as a volunteer. We've talked a lot on Radioactive about the health of the monarch population, what that means to not only our crops, but wildlands. So what is what happens with your project for plants and pollinators?
2: Well, people can um, go to designated locations and work with a group, or they can just do it on their own. They can um, get... Um, either on an app, on their phone, or even just on a paper form. They can document monarch butterflies or Western bumblebees, other pollinators that are in decline that need to be tracked, or they can, if they spot some milkweed, they can document that. And all that information helps to inform the project so we can um, know more about these species, about their movements, how many there are, and what habitat needs to be in place for them to survive.
0: Now, I understand that the Monarch has been under consideration for the Endangered Species Act for being placed on that. And is this decision still pending? I thought we were expecting one, then COVID hit. So maybe it's all been pushed back.
2: Right. I think there's there's been some disruption there. And this data will really help us understand really how many are out there because sightings have become so rare. And um, the rate of decline is up to 99%. And we're trying to help fill in those gaps and have the data that we need to make those decisions.
0: The Black Rosie Finch Project. Tell me about this one. It's a medium commitment from volunteers.
2: This one, yeah, it's uh, the Black Rosy Finch is uh, known by many as North America's most mysterious bird. They occupy alpine climate or habitats, So they're high elevations. Their movements are throughout the West from Washington down through Utah, New Mexico, and Northern Arizona. So we... Um, track them through bird feeder locations some of them are in ski resorts so it can also be a great opportunity to uh, incorporate some volunteerism in your recreation and also um, opportunistic surveys in various areas throughout the west just trying to get a good idea of their distribution and survivorship we have scientists that will tag them with radio frequency identification so we can get a better idea of their movements and then we'll also collect some samples from their feathers and and talents, basically, to uh, get an idea of where they're from and how widely they travel.
0: And lastly, the Great Salt Lake Wetlands Project. Tell me about that one, and what kind of commitment does it ask of volunteers when they get involved?
2: This one is a relatively new one, so uh, volunteer opportunities are still pending on this one, but it's a very important project. As we've all heard, the Great Salt Lake is at historic low levels. There's a lot of development diverting water away from its wetlands, So, and it's a hugely important habitat for migratory birds, and so it's a project where we get um, regional or wetland managers from throughout the Great Salt Lake area working together and developing, we developed a needs assessment last year and that's informing uh, work going forward to help manage these wetlands and help to uh, keep them as healthy as we can.
0: Tell me about uh, the Wild Utah Project now expanding beyond Utah. What brought that about? Is it just the fact that, you know, a state's borders can't contain all this great uh, wilderness that we have going on?
2: That's exactly it. Uh, we were founded like we talked about earlier is a single project in southern Utah, but really our vision we share with partner organizations of habitat that's connected from Alaska down through Mexico and beyond. So it's really a reflection of the natural growth of our projects, since the habitat we and the wildlife that we study doesn't stop at our borders. So it's really just reflective of where we are with more projects and all the projects that we discussed overlap pollinators and amphibians and all wildlife need these stream corridors that we work to restore. And so the name just reflects where we are, where we're going, and the many opportunities that people have to get involved.
0: Well, Josh, it's been great getting caught up with the formerly known as the Wild Utah Project, now Sageland Collaborative. I'm guessing you probably have some uh, fundraising events coming up and different things that folks can do beyond those field outreach projects we talked about. What's coming up and how can people stay engaged?
2: Well, this year is our 25th anniversary. Um, COVID has Uh, prevented us from having a single large in-person event, but instead we're going to have a virtual campaign. We have a volunteer appreciation virtual event on October 13th. So for the 25 days leading up to that, beginning September 19th, we're having an online campaign where people can get outside and volunteer either with us on a stream project or any other conservation volunteerism they want to do or just go out for a hike and tag Sage on Collaborative on social media. Anybody that does will be entered into a raffle. We've got some fun prizes from generous donors like Cool and Recreation Outlet. We're just going to celebrate outside and online for 25 days to celebrate our anniversary.
0: What's the website and the social media where people can find you?
2: Uh, At Sageland Collaborative on social media and sagelandcollaborative.org. If you still have Wild Utah Project bookmarked, uh, it'll get you there as well.
0: Josh Wood of Sageland Collaborative, formerly the Wild Utah Project. Check tonight's show notes for a link, especially to those six field projects that you can go out on and help them with. Starting Friday, the Salt Lake City Greek Festival is back. Here's a little Maria Callas for you. The legendary diva, the Greek soprano, one of the most famous opera arias. This is from Carmen on KRCL.
3: My name is George Karajalos. I'm with the Greek Orthodox Church, and we're going to be discussing the Greek festival today.
0: So the Greek festival is happening this weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and after the year that shall not be named, so happy that our community festivals are coming back. I was looking on your website about the history of the festival on Greeks in Utah, and the census of 1900 listed three Greeks. (laughs)
3: In Utah. I'm sure yes. I'm sure there were only about three Greeks then in 1900, several more around the country. But yeah, Utah was a very uh, scarce area for Greeks It never really knew about it.
0: But then thousands mining and railroads and uh you know, through the through the last hundred years the Greek community has grown. Why is the festival so important for the Greek community? I mean, I know it's a fundraiser for Holy Trinity and the programs that you do, but why is the festival important culturally?
3: Well, yes, it is a fundraiser and uh, we do do it for a lot of uh, great charities that we we do donate money to. But it's more important to us to really showcase our heritage, our religion, our philoxonia, which means our hospitality. And really, because we're, as Greeks, we've always been very hospitable people. And we love to bring people in and show them a good time and tell them what everything's about, maybe even talk some stories about our old grandparents that first came and and you know and then our, our parents that came over. And you know, we even have Greeks as myself who we are first generation here. And you know, just this the the trials and tribulations and where we've come from where we were like 30, 40 years ago to today. And it's really quite a unique and more of a Uh, more of a fairy tale story sometimes, because you hear about Greek miners that were here, and then somehow they built uh, a great little enterprise uh, within their own little community. And that's what's really neat about us. And um, as Greeks, like I said, we're very hospitable people. We love to entertain and we love to have people see our culture, our dancing, our, our church, our museum, which is a one of a kind in the country. It is an amazing museum that has not only uh, the history of our church, but also the history of the Greeks in Utah. That's something that I think everybody should see.
0: I always look forward to that at Holy Trinity down there on Third South and Third West in Salt Lake City. The festival founded in 1976, from uh, what I read on your website. Right. Uh, but food and music, and, uh, you know, I'm thinking Spanakopita. It's like on my mind. I need to get down there. I need to get some baklava, all that kind of stuff.
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think everybody um, should ha- at least try at least one portion of everything we have, including the sweets. That's very important. Because you know the, the pastries are amazing. They're all handmade here by our, the ladies in our community. And it, they have worked since probably March, getting those things put together and ready to go. Uh, the same thing with the food. We started that probably in May, I, think, I believe it was in May. And we slowly prepare it and, and get it ready. And we, we, of course we keep it in the freezer. And then of course we bring it out, thaw it out slowly uh, over a two week period. And then we cook it all up for everybody.
0: What's your go-to dish for the Greek Fest, George?
3: My go-to dish? Oh, boy. I love the stifada, which is the stew. It is a beef stew with uh, tomato sauce and and onions in it. It is absolutely delicious. The guy that's been doing it took over from his father-in-law who was doing it. And his father-in-law did it for probably 30, 40 years prior to that. Um, And he still makes it the same way with the same ingredients and a specific wine that he puts in there that makes the stew just absolutely incredible. That's one of them. I also like, of course, the calamari, the squid. You got to have some of that when you're down here.
0: I've been worried that the Greek Fest will go away, not because of of COVID, but because of development downtown and what's planned there. Uh, Update us on what's planned next to Holy Trinity there.
3: Well, the the plan is, uh, the master plan is to take uh, the the block north of the cathedral, right outside the cathedral, and develop that whole area into retail office space, a hotel, apartment buildings, and of course, our own offices. So we'll be tearing down the building that we're in right now that that hosts the Greek Festival and uh, build that project there. As well as just east of us, we have the La France Apartments. Uh, The master plan is to take those down and build a new there and have affordable housing as well as regular housing for everybody in that area. And then of course we do have uh, some property across the street, about approximately two acres that we're thinking about doing the same there, apartment buildings and maybe some office retail space there as well. Uh, That is still in the, I guess in the infant stages if you will, of the project. Um, I don't see it happening uh, this year or next year but maybe the year after, something like that. We're we we still we're still a little ways away from that.
0: <laughs> so would the Greek Fest go into the facilities that are redeveloped there, or will it be evolving in the future?
3: Well, the, the idea is to evolve it into something different, but probably on the same scale. Uh, the new banquet hall, we're thinking about um, building there uh, seats about 800 people. So that would be a very large area where they could go in and and enjoy the food. And there'll be a nice little courtyard area where we could prepare it and get it ready for everybody. And it might be a little bit easier for us once the project is finished because it might <laughs> what? well, well, we wouldn't have to put up gigantic tents that are the size of a football field. Let's put it.
0: I love watching it go up every year. I was really sad about last uh, year, uh, right? We didn't have the Greek Fest like so many other cultural festivals that happen this time of year. September is one of my favorite times because we get the Greek Festival, Festiva- Festa Italiana, the the uh, fair. All sorts of things.
3: Yeah, and, and we missed it last year as well. That's why we're so excited to bring it to everybody this year. This is something that you know it has been uh, what a year in its absence, and now we we come back to it. And I'll tell you, we have had calls as far as New York asking if we're going to do our Greek festival. And as you may know or may not know, it is the largest Greek festival west of the Mississippi. It is um, and 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 really become an integral part of the community. The entire utah community if you will we have people coming in from idaho nevada montana wyoming uh, new mexico phoenix arizona um, even california we have a vendor from california here we have a vendor from denver here um so we have a lot of good things to to really showcase um if there would i would just recommend everybody come down and take a look for yourself
0: i really want to encourage people to take time in the museum too and learn more about the history of greeks in utah the contributions that the greek community has made past present and future as, as we were just talked about um, the the greek community evolving uh revolving around holy trinity perhaps but uh Really growing and changing along with the times.
3: Oh, indeed, uh, the museum is incredible. Um, it really goes all the way back to 1905 when the first church was built. So you can go down there and see old images of the of our ancestors who had come and they you know and they they wanted to make something better for not only themselves but for their kids and their grandkids. Kind of like what we're trying to do today with our new project. Um, of course, not to that scale, but they really did an amazing job after they built. The very first church was really over there on 4th South between 4th and 5th West. And um, that was an, a great little place, you know, where they gathered. And there was Greek town there. There was everybody, you know, everybody kind of gathered there and, and got together and very close community. And of course, in 1925, they built Holy Trinity Cathedral right here um, next door to the festival. And it's been standing ever since. It is on the National and, and, and Utah Historical Register. So it is a historical building. And it is absolutely incredible inside. It's a, it's a must-see for everybody. And like I said, the museum, one of a kind. It is the only type of museum for Hellenicism in the entire country. It is, yeah, people have come from all over to look at this museum. It's not big right now, but they probably have about, oh, I would say at least five to six thousand square feet of, of, of um, artifacts to show everybody but they just can't display it all because we don't have that room yet. That's why our new project will have the museum building in it. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, what are the hours and what's the website or social we can drive people to to uh, figure out how to get on down there and plan their weekend at the Greek
3: Fest? Yes, uh, tickets are being sold at the door. The the dates are this coming Friday, Saturday and Sunday, 10th, 11th and 12th, Uh, 11 to 11 on Friday and Saturday and 12 to 9 on Sunday. Uh, Like I said, a $3 entrance fee. And then all the food that you want to eat is, will be available for you. And of course, pastries. Let's not forget about those, along with the entertainment that comes with it.
0: Hey, George, thank you so much for sharing a bit about this year's Greek Festival in Salt Lake City. We'll put a link
3: in the show notes. Well, thank you so much for having me and hope to see everybody down here. Think of your
4: fellow man, lend him a helping hand. To put-
3: See it's getting late Please don't hesitate Put, Put a little light. Light.
0: Ah, the late, great Leonard Nimoy with his version of the Jackie DeShannon tune. Put a little love in your heart. I'm Laura Jones. This is Radioactive, and it is Star Trek Day. Going to have a little fun to wrap the show and share with you my conversation with Carl Stark, a technologist and part of a local group known as Starfleet Command's Seventh Fleet. Here we go.
5: I first became fascinated with Star Trek while it was being rerun in the 70s, um, I my dad would watch it. And while he's watching the episodes, I would start asking all these questions like, well, wait a second, if they're in outer space, how come they're not floating around? Because I know there's no gravity in space. And I was asking him all these questions. And it just fascinated me about the show. And uh, we I, I, I've become what's called a Treknologist. I actually have, you, you can't really see it, but on my, uh, on my office wall over here is a name plaque that a coworker had made for me years ago that says Carl Stark Treknologist on it, because I was fascinated by the starships and the technology of Star Trek. And it, it, it came from that showing about what we could do with the technology in the future, the transporters, the replicators, um, eventually the holodecks and stuff like that. And that was when I was very young. And obviously as I got older, we we went and saw all the movies when they first came out on opening weekend. I remember watching the pilot for the next generation when it first aired and going to school the next day to talk to a geeky teacher about it. And, And eventually like a lot of other fans, I discovered the humanity side of the stories. Um, they had messages behind them and good writing usually meant that you didn't even know you had messages being given to you until after the show was after the episode was completed um a good a good uh episode a good example of that is the next generation episode half a life where uh um deanna troy's mother played by majel roddenberry uh, alex warner troy she falls in love with this gentleman, uh, David Allen, who's played by David Allen, um, Allen Spears, I believe from MASH, MASH fame. And um, he, uh, he basically is a scientist and at the end of his experiments, when he realizes, well, he's gonna have to pass this on to the next uh, group of scientists because in his culture, they, they kill themselves at a certain age uh, because they, they don't wanna be a burden on their, on their family. And of course, it's a, it's a cultural conflict, you know, because she's also called quite older herself, and she's like, well, wait a second, you can't do this, all sorts of other stuff. And it's one of those lessons that basically you learn, you think about the topic at, by the end of the episode, even if you didn't think about it during the episode. And those were a lot better than the episodes where they kind of said, well, here's a, here, here, here's, here's a, here's a message, and then we build a story around the message. And, and those ones kind of flop sometimes, but, but so, so when you had good writing, you just came away from the end of the episode going, wait a second, maybe, maybe this shouldn't happen, or maybe I should think about um, things that have, that have come up. Yeah, and cause...
0: yeah, those are the ones that stand out for me too. I was thinking of an episode on the original series where they land on a planet and it's at war, but there is no actual violence. People just report by numbers. I can't remember the name of the episode. I'm...
5: A Taste of Armageddon.
0: You know what I was talking about. <laughs> and I, I just, that one's come up again and again and again as we talk about our forever wars here, uh, having... Exited Afghanistan the way we did and uh, the anniversary of 9-11, 20th anniversary, just a few days away here as well. And those are the ones that really stick with me. And I think that's why I've always gravitated sto- towards toward the Star Trek canon, than even Star Wars, although I do like Stargate. I think Stargate and Star Trek have some things in common. Um, what is it? that um, Star Trek has been in your life because I'm looking at your blog, the TARDIS captain's blog of holding random musings from a geek dad (laughs) and I see the photos over the course of your life and you've had several different um, Star Trek uniforms and gone to conventions.
5: Oh yeah. Um, Star Trek for me has been about hope. Um, It's been, how do I put this? Because it's evolved. I mean, I talked about how it was one thing at the very beginning, and then as as it, as Star Trek has grown, I have grown, and we've kind of grown together. It's almost been like a companion. Um, originally, when I first thought about joining a fan club, I wasn't thinking about putting on the uniforms. I wasn't thinking about learning all the trivia. I just wanted to hang out with other Star Trek fans. And... Um, some of this was in the days when you know the internet was very in its infant inf- infancy. so you had to find fans where you found them and you did that through conventions, which is where a lot of those photos had come from that you're, that you're looking at and uh, uh, you meet up with them and then you you realize that you know, hey, we have this common bond, which is our love for the show called Star Trek. But then you also realize you're caring about how their family is doing and how their life is going on and um, how can we help each other um, and how how we can use our organization, our fandom to go ahead and try to move um, our society into what we see in the 23rd and 24th, and now even beyond that centuries that we see on the show. Um, we've done blood drives, we've done Adopt-a-Highways. Uh, in fact, at the upcoming convention uh, that's, that's coming up here pretty soon, um, we're going to have a booth at FinX. And um, the reason why they allow us to have a booth there is because they know that we do charity work. We're gonna be raising funds for the Best Friends Animal Society. Uh, and, uh, and that's been one of the many charities that we've done in the past. So it, 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 it's like it's a common bond, it's a common theme, and then you realize that there's more there. And uh, some of these friendships have lasted 30 plus years, more than that sometimes. Um, some of these friendships have turned into more than friendships. I am so very thankful that I have a geek wife and uh, that when i say hey you know there's there's this mst3k play coming out let's go see it a live show coming out let's go see it or she'll turn to me and say
0: mystery science theater 3000 oh, yes yes yeah. I bet. aren't up on the geek acronyms <laughs> <laughs> and, and,
5: and 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 my life is so much better about the fact that i've got somebody who understands that and it's not just oh well it's just his hobby and i'm, I'm tolerating it and stuff like that I mean, we have we have we have interests that are, that are separates and stuff like that, but there's a whole bunch more bonding because of the fact that we'll sit down and watch Star Wars, or we'll sit down and watch Star Trek, or we'll sit down and watch uh, something geeky, or we'll go to a convention. We've been to we've been to the Vegas conventions. We've been to a convention in Denver called Starfest.
0: Do you find that folks? Do you find that folks go to these conventions or create these communities around things like Star Trek because of? Of of perhaps even the ethics that Star Trek stands for outside of the rest of the world, I mean, in a time when we're seeing uh, a question of who's in the pews at at traditional church, going up and down, Star Trek feels like there's it's purpose driven that it's purpose driven. It's that whole Prime Directive and do no harm, and it's something that folks can agree on.
5: I I I would agree with that. Um, there are members of uh, the Star Trek community, both within the clubs and convention attendees, that when you actually get together and talk with each other, um, you're realizing how human they are and how, 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 in, how, 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 how they have their own fears and how they have their own concerns and like that, and how it's something that we, we have to bond together and we have to put our differences aside. And, and, and Star Trek kind of leads into that. And there are, there are people on a wide variety of religious spectrums. There are peoples on the wide variety of political spectrums that are still Star Trek fans and they get together and they sit down and talk. Um, one of the things I love is Star Trek quotes. And uh, Kirk once said, understanding has men made friends of many different people. And I think that common bond kind of helps at least gets the, gets the discussion started. Um, we don't know if it'll really end the way it needs to end, but at least we'll get the discussion started of, hey, you know, we're the same, we bleed red, we, we, we all have to worry about bills, and we all have to worry about, uh, you know, making sure our kids are taken care of, and that this planet's going to be here for our kids, and, and the like, and we have to Star Trek is kind of like that calming introduction, that that that, that door that's opening up, because you have sports fans, and sports fans can all love the same team, but sometimes so I, some of the sports rivalries. I love sports, I love the local local teams, but sometimes sometimes those rivalries just get too far into the realm of hatred. And, and what, I mean, we're talking about rivalries. People have always come up to me before and said, well, you're a Star Trek guy. You can't like Star Wars. I'm like, what? No. <laughs> <laughs> this is something that, this is something that uh, you enjoy what you enjoy. And because they're close to each other, doesn't mean the other team is automatically excluded.
0: Speaking of teams, Star Trek also, uh, from the original on, really confronted issues of race and identity, and tried to um, really show by example, I think, uh, how to get it right, how to get it wrong, and has survived, whereas there's been some Star Wars controversies with actors behind the scene, what faces are on the screen or not on the screen. And so in that respect. Uh, You know, I'm team Star Trek. (laughs) (laughs) But um, you had, you had Kurt quotes. So, so give me, give me some other quotes or or poignant moments for you that maybe speak to what we're going through or how we can get through it.
5: Um, I think the best Star Trek quote that I have ever heard. In fact, I've added this to my signature on my emails is um, Captain Picard. In that same episode, "Half a Life" that we were talking about earlier, and he says, "Our only influence is by example," and that when I first heard that, and when I and when I first uh, when I first saw that in that episode that that one struck with me so much. Um, you can try to um, dictate how to do things with the point of a gun. You can try to bribe people uh, with a variety of of rewards to go ahead and do things. Um, But if you can show, hey, this is a good thing to do, and this is is how I'm going to do it, um, you can influence others. it's like the, it's like it's like a, a candle. You know, when a candle lights another candle, it doesn't diminish itself. It's 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 spreading that light, and I think that is one of the things that Star Trek has helped do. Now we also have to understand that it, with it being a TV show made by humans under a budget under a deadline, um, there are times that they kind of have to push things through and, and the like, and so it. It's it's one of those things where I can sit back and say you know what I I can see where they were going but I can see where where real life kind of interfered with the whole thing, and and it's it's not going to diminish my love of the show just because of the fact that they stumbled. Um, the last episode of Enterprise was one that since the fine since it first aired i have still not watched it i will sit down and watch any other episode any other movie spock's brain star trek 5 voyagers episode threshold where janeway and paris turn into lizards and have babies i mean you've got some really clunkers out there and you know what i'll still sit down and watch those just because of the fact that they're entertaining and they uh they basically take me out of what's happening in the real world. And they give me a chance to step away from everything.
0: But spoiler alert, what about Enterprise? Could you not take in?
5: Well, just that final episode, just that final episode. I I had an opportunity to watch the pilot episode of Enterprise a couple of weeks before it came out because they sent a um, preview copy to a local uh, reporter. And the reporter not only wanted to report on the show itself, but the fans' reactions to the show. So he invited me and a few other people to show up. And, and watch it. And it was really fun, interesting because they would say, special effect going to be inserted here, you know, and, and, and the like. So It was,
0: it was a rough cut.
5: <laughs> it was a rough cut.
0: And this was the one where they're first getting into, into space, essentially, yep. right? Yeah,
5: there's no Federation yet. It's just Earth. And the Vulcans are allies, but they're holding off on technology. And, and we're first meeting the Klingons. And, and it's kind of the building blocks for everything. It was an interesting concept. Um, I will say that when I heard a a musical interlude for the opening that had lyrics. It shocked me for a second, but it's one of those ones that grew on me. Um, Again, Enterprise kind of stumbled in a few areas, but it wasn't to the point of where I threw my hands in the air and said, no, I, I can't watch this. It was just that last episode of Enterprise was the finishing of 17 straight years of Star Trek on television. And they, the producers had this idea of it being a love letter to the fans. And had it been like a sweeps week episode because you had a couple of TNG cast members showing up and they were kind of overbearing the final episode and kind of, it was more of a TNG episode than it was of an enterprise episode. And I think it had, if it had been a sweeps week episode it would have worked. A final episode for seventeen straight years of Star Trek. It really, really clunked, and part of that reason I think was is I, I was actually part of the fandom movement, uh, sent money in, digs and signatures, actually went to protests to try to get more seasons of Enterprise. Yeah, um, I thought
0: that was a wasted opportunity too because they ended it way too early. And, and then and, there was and, a drought for a while. Oh yeah,
5: yeah. There, there was, there was, there was a huge drought, and and I remember when the scene was is that Riker and Troy turn off the holodeck and walk out the door, and I remember thinking to myself, this is a huge middle finger to the fans because it's like we can shut this off anytime we want, and there's nothing you can do about it, and it, 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 final episodes. For series, they usually tend to take a little bit more risks of stuff that they wouldn't have done during the regular episodes, regular series. But it's, it was like they were putting in risk just to say, "Hey, we're being, we're putting in something that you wouldn't have. We're going to kill off a main character. We're going to have, you know, all this stuff that doesn't even make sense happening. You know, it's been so many years and no one's gotten promoted." And also and 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 there are some nitpicky things in other episodes and other nitpicky things in even the newer episodes that are coming out. and And some of them are fun because you have to try to sometimes sometimes it, it, all those episodes and all those series and all those movies, they intermingle together and eventually you become with this web and sometimes some of the strands don't properly fit and so sometimes you have to think how do you get this to
0: kind of fit together and sometimes you can't thank you so much carl also known as the tardis captain now that's a mashup of two worlds doctor who and star trek and a conversation for another day thank you so much for giving me some time happy star trek day
5: happy star trek day to you
0: Thank you, Carl. Check tonight's show notes for links to things we spoke about. Get involved if you have the time and some extra dimes and cause some good trouble in your own community, why don't you? I'm Laura Jones, and coming up at 7 o'clock, it is Democracy Now!, followed by Emily's mixtape at 8, Maximum Distortion at 10.30, and Your Rude Awakening at 3 a.m., followed by A Brand New Day at 6 with John Florence. This last one's just for you, Carl. Well, and every other Trekker out there, happy Star Trek Day from Radioactive and KRCL. Star Trekking across
4: the universe On the Starship Enterprise under Captain Kirk Star Trekking across the universe
5: No, it is life, Jim, but not as we know it, not as we know it,
4: Captain. There's sling on the starboard bow, starboard bow, starboard bow. There's sling us on the starboard bow. Scrape them off, Jim.
1: Star trekking across the universe.
4: On the starship Enterprise, under Captain Kirk.
1: Star trekking across the universe.
4: Laws of physics, laws of physics, can't the laws of physics. Laws of physics, Jim. Oh, we come in peace, Shoot to kill, shoot to kill, shoot to kill. We come in peace, Shoot to kill, Scotty, beam me up. It's worse than that, He's dead, Jim, dead, Jim, dead, Jim. It's worse than that, He's dead, Jim, dead, Jim, dead. Well, it's
5: life, Jim, but not as we know it, not as we know it, not as we know it. It's life, Jim, but not as we know it, not as we know it, Captain. On the
4: starboard bow, starboard bow, starboard bow. Starboard now starboard bow. Yeah, yeah. You cannot change the script, Jim. I'll see you, Jimmy. It's worse than that is physics, Jim. Bridge to engine room. Nine. Ok, give up, up!